Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 42. Really excited about this because it's another conversation style episode, which are turning out to be my favorite ones. They're the most fun. And so this is Ned Eric, who is a member of our mastermind that we call The Lab, also now a good friend and uh, just full of wisdom. And he's got a lot of interesting thoughts and some interesting rituals uh, that he does, including a very extreme fast that he'll talk more about. And so let's just jump right into it. This is the interview with Ned Eric. Okay, I'm super happy to have Ned Eric on the podcast today and look forward to having a stimulating conversation with Ned, which um, seems to be uh, easy to do because Ned's a thinker and he's got great questions, great thoughts. And, you know, I've enjoyed getting to know you, Ned, just over the last few months. So Ned and I are connected primarily because he joined our mastermind group called The Lab. And so we meet together on Mondays with the other uh, men in this group and we discuss quality questions and we discuss the type of things that can help us reduce interference in our life so that we can perform more optimally. And um, so, uh, Ned, why don't you just start off by just telling us briefly, like, where are you at in the world and in your career uh, elevator pitch on what you do for a living and, and what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, really appreciate you having me on, Alex. Um, super pumped to chat. But I am a, uh, I am, my official title is head of growth for a management consulting firm called Close Loop. Uh, we also are a venture capital, early stage venture capital fund. And I am the head trainer. And also, uh, I run our founder accelerator. So, uh, we bring on early stage organizations and I actually run them through our entire accelerator, uh, for that as well. That's awesome. Um, what do you love about that? Man, dude, it's going to sound cliche, but no day is the same, right? Like I get to have conversations every single day with founders that are changing the world. Quite honestly, we work specifically with tech founders, B2B. And, you know, I'm having conversations one hour with a company that's building a fitness AI tool. And the next one, one that's building a machine learning tool for grocery stores to figure out if they've got, you know, enough uh, stuff going on. And and we actually just brought on an automated uh, car company that they're doing oh, cool. some cool stuff there. So, man, it's just a blast to be able to have conversations with these founders every single day and just really help them scale, right? Help them get to a point where, man, they're raising a, a hefty series A, moving on to another series and, um, you know, putting them on the path to scale is is just, it's honestly, it's, it's one of my favorite things in the entire world, so. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, you know, one of the things that I've quickly learned about you, Ned, is um, you, you strike me as very disciplined and very hardworking. People talk about being hardworking, but what I understand about the schedule that you keep, the amount of work that you put on your plate um, is that you are truly 
a hard worker and you try to work smart and work efficient as well. But I mean, just like a lot of raw, hard work, a lot of hours being put into the, the mission that you have right now. Yeah. Um, so tied to that is this very fascinating feature of your life that I am excited to talk about, which is that you begin every year fasting yeah. from all food, drinking only water for 21 days. And um, I'm sure people listening to this will be uh, very intrigued by this because how can you not be? Um, We were having a conversation in the mastermind group about the concept of fasting and how, you know, it's interesting because it is found as a tenant in virtually every world religion. Yeah. There's a, there's an element of fasting and, uh, and it goes back, you know, anciently. And so we were talking about the reasons that, that that might be, and then emerged, you know, Ned and his, you know, rather humble comment that he's into fasting and, uh, he casually fasts for 21 days, <laughs> January 1st to January 21st. And it just literally stopped everybody dead in their tracks. And we had to make sure we understood correctly. So, um, I think the first question I have is so that people hear it from your own mouth, define for me what you mean when you say you fast for 21 days. Yeah. I, for, from the first day of January for 21 days, I only drink water. That is what I mean by fasting. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, the next question is why do you do this, Ned? Yeah. So started probably five or six years ago at this point now. Um, and it's consecrating the first portion of my year to the Lord, right? I'm a Christian. And so for me, um, I started doing this as 21 days of, of prayer and fasting. It wasn't because I knew anything about the health benefits. It wasn't because I thought that if I did this for the first 21 days, that I would have the discipline to be, you know, super successful, right? It wasn't because I read some like morning routine book. And, you know, at the end, they told us that fasting was good for us. Um, For me personally, it is a a, a very spiritual um, experience, right? It is consecrating that first portion of my year to God and taking that time to say, you know, you talked about my schedule, If I am hungry, if I have free time, if, you know, during these first 21 days, if I have anything that isn't filled with a meeting or a call or uh, marketing or work that I have to do, it is spent in the Bible or in prayer, right? And through this, it really is a matter of, right, taking that first portion of the year and saying, all right, I've made these goals that I have, but God, you've created me to have this dedication, this desire, this discipline that I have in my life. And so I'm using this to just thank you and to be near to you in this first portion. And really um, the clarity that it brings you, the, the words from the Lord that you get during this around, hey, you've got this goal, but I've got this bigger goal, right? And so I think that's a huge portion of it. Um, and as it's evolved, um, it's become a very cool experience health-wise. It's become a very cool experience 
uh, brain clarity uh, wise. It's become a really cool experience adding in like breath work and other meditative, you know, states and things like that. But the whole overarching premise is, you know what, you know, God, you have created me to be who I am. And I, I, you deserve my thanks for that. And, you know, the, the Bible, you know, calls us to do that. There are people in the Bible that have fasted and, and had amazing experiences. And um, it's because when you put your focus on God, God will, you know, present when you take the step, right. I always, I always talk about this to people is if you look at anyone in the Bible, there was an action that they took after God asked them to do something before they were actually presented with the promise of the Lord. Right. So like, I, I think about Abraham, right. Like the father of the faith in, in the Christian faith. Right. And he had to take the step. Think about how crazy that story is. Right. And I think Jordan Peterson talks a yeah. little bit about this, right. Like it's, this guy is in this comfortable situation when, and then God goes, oh, hey, by the way, leave everything. I've got something better for you. And he had to take that step to go find something better and be the father of the faith and, and, and show what, you know, and, you know, create what he was able to create and his family and his lineage was able to create. Right. So this every year, this first, the first 21 days is my step for the Lord to say, Lord, I am in obedience and I am stepping into your will for this year. And it is that action that I'm taking to then get to the promises uh, that the Lord has for me. Well, it's very, it's very inspiring to me, um, truly. And I think about, I think about the fact that you do that a lot. And um, so thank you for sharing additional thoughts around it. Um, man, so <laughs> what, what would you say to, all right, what would you say to somebody who is inspired by the idea of fasting for an elongated period of time and, you know, doing it primarily with spiritual motives, a desire to praise God and to uh, suppress, you know, the natural desires of the flesh in order to become more united with, with the divine. Right. Yeah. What would you say to someone who, who has never done that or has only fasted for maybe a day max? What's your advice? Cause this sounds dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm not a doctor. So <laughs> any, let's disclaimer this, right. Um, that, my, I'm about my, to get my, canceled for Ned's disinformation. Here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. We'll be the Joe Rogan next. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think the biggest thing, if you want to do it spiritually is pray first, right. Say, God, what will you have me do? Right. I think that's the biggest thing is, I think a lot of people when it comes to fasting, especially in the, you know, the Christian space, the religious space is they think that if I fast and if I pray, God's going to give me everything I need or everything I want, right? God will always give you everything you need, but it's the wants, right? And I think a lot of people get into that, like, because they hear, you know, sermons on that, like, oh, fasting and praying, this is how you get millions of dollars, right? This is mm -hmm. how you get that new job, whatever it may be. When in reality, God's not asking you all the time to fast and pray. He's asking you to be near to him, 
right? And so I think if you're intrigued by this, I would, I would encourage you to get near to God. And what I mean by that is spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, spend time in, uh, in silence, right? And say, God, what will you have me do, right? Direct me in the path that you want me to go, right? If you have that sense that God's saying, I want you to fast and pray, again, ask for how long. And I always say, I, I say, start small, right? Start with 24 hours, then go to 72, then maybe go for five days or a week or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I, I, I told the guys in the lab, I didn't start fasting 21 days of water. Like my very first fast was a Daniel fast, right? Which is like fruits and vegetables, right? Take all meat, dairy, sugars, all of that out of it. And then from there, I did like another Daniel fast. And then I did a smoothie fast, right? Where you only can drink your food. Um, and then I did a juice fast. And then the last few years have been when I did the water, right? So how, how many years would you say, have you done this like full-blown deal? Uh, three. Three years. And tell me something about the, the stats. Like you told me about some pretty radical weight loss. <laughs> Yeah. The most I've ever lost in like 21 days was like 50 pounds, but that was just like, I was a fat person at that point. Um, so this one, I think I only ended up, I didn't really track this year as much, but I think it was like 18, 21 pounds of, cause you know. you're, you're quite lean. I mean, you're, you're, you're a passionate fitness. You're a fit guy, right? Ned, you, you're, would you call yourself a bodybuilder? I mean, I think you're pretty serious about, about the gym. Tell me about that. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, we could probably, some people would call me a bodybuilder. I just, I, I love working out. Right. It's like, it is my like home away from home, I guess you could say. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a huge deal for me. I eat right every day. Um, you know, I, I work out seven days a week, which mm -hmm. some people listening to this are probably like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Well, sorry, I do it. Um, and then, so yeah, I, I think I probably live a bodybuilder lifestyle. Um, there are just a couple of things that body, some bodybuilders do that I don't. <laughs> mm. Well, it's very cool. Something you may not know. I don't know if we've actually talked about this, but, um, in my religious tradition, you know, I'm a member of a church with a very long name, the mm -hmm. church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we observe fast Sunday, which is the first Sunday of the month. Okay. So the idea, everybody fasts or is encouraged to fast for 24 hours. And then we donate a fast offering, um, which is kind of based on like the money you would have spent on those meals. And cool. then, you know, two or three or four or five or 10 times more than that would actually cost, you know, a generous donation that goes to the, the poor. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, Ned, to kind of turn myself in, um, as I listen to you talk, it's like, you know, fasting for me growing up, it was such an expectation because yeah. it was fast Sunday. And so it was like, it was just about, man, like, are we going to have dinner really early on Sunday so that we can be done fasting? And, and it's kind of like the gray area of like, okay, you know, we went to bed then we skipped breakfast and lunch, but then we had dinner at three 30 PM, you know, and like, we're good with that. So pretty, pretty liberal, uh, you know, definition of, of fasting. And what, what strikes me as so cool is it's like, man, 
I think a lot of the reasons that I have not had more meaningful experiences with fasting um, can be related to the fact that it's been kind of like this expectation, just like a, like a ritual, like a culture thing. And it shows up every month. I think it's a beautiful idea. Um, but the idea of intentionally deciding to fast for longer, uh, it, even just that one decision to say, okay, I'm going to go for 48 hours. It breaks through the, uh, the standard expectation. Cause we talk about a 24 hour fast. So that's yeah. what's so cool to me is it's like, Hey, just deciding to go, I'm going to go 24 hours, 72 hours, whatever it is that you feel, uh, is right. It brings a level of intention to it that, man, when you think about it, probably is the only way it makes sense to fast is to do it intentionally. Not like, you know, you're being forced to, or you're doing it, you know, out of some kind of quasi, like, you know, I don't know, some kind of guilt thing or pressure thing. I think that's, that brings something up. I think that's a lot about just life and the things that we decide to do in life, right? Is the intentionality behind it and the reason behind it is so important, whether it be fasting, whether if you're in sales, knocking on doors, making cold calls, or whether you're, you know, a father or a husband, right? Like everything that we do should have some intentionality behind it. Right. And so I think a lot of times, right. I'll, I'll use the word mandate, not in a political sense uh, that we've been hearing it lately, but I think when we are mandated to do something and we feel obligated to do something, there's a disconnect to our why, mm-hmm. right? Because if someone else is telling us that we have to do this and they don't give us a why behind it, I think as human beings, we tend to push back, right? Mm-hmm. Or if someone forces a why onto us of, hey, you have to do this, if it, and it's not connected to our values, it's not connected to what we want to achieve in life, in relationships, in our relationship with God, whatever it may be, in business, it's very easy to go, well, I'll do it, yeah. but I'm going to do it in a half-hearted way. Yeah. The, the bare minimum. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just escape by, but the quality is low. And the Bible talks about that, right? I mean, yeah. the, the warning of, you know, what is it like the, the long face and the having this like sad face on as you fast, you know, like, you you should not be wearing burlap while you fast and walking around emaciated and telling everyone about what you're doing because it's everything in life, right? It's, it's, we're not doing things for the glory of ourselves. If we have an intention behind it of creating an impact for others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the case, whether it be, religion, whether it be uh, family, whether it be business, whatever it may be, is if we have an intentionality behind everything that we do, and we have the actual, a goal at the end of this. And for most, most of us, I think as we grow up, we, the goals start to be external of ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Fasting for 21 days is great for me right? There are things that happen and, and, and words that I get and sure there's some health benefits, but the rest of my year, the way that I'm able to interact with others and the ways that I'm able to align with my goals, right? It's the same way 
that if I have an intention of being a great father, well, what does that look like? Right. No one tells me that I have to be a great father. Right. If you do this, 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 and this, you're going to be a great father. Right. Or in business, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to be a great business person. Those things are all great. Those are great roadmaps for us to be able to stay on track of. And it's the reason I'm a part of the lab, being able to be around so many high performance individuals every single week and creating friendships with them where I'm talking to most of them every at least every single week, if not most, you know, multiple times a, a week is they provide me a roadmap, but then I'm able to be intentional with the decisions that I'm making on that roadmap. I have a map in front of me and I'm intentional about the places that I go on that map. That's where we start to see the biggest success. Yeah. I really, really appreciate that thought. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about the role that things like a religious structure, um, play in raising kids and in being raised, you know, like we were, we were kids and now we have kids. Um, and specifically what I'm thinking about is that, you know, I find a ton of value in the structure of, for example, Hey, we're going to church. Like at some age, it's not like, do you want to go? It's like, get in the car. We're going right. This is what we do, right? There are these standards that are taught and upheld and uh, values that are in, in, I guess you could say enforced on these, you know, young people. (laughs) And there's, but there's also this this place where perhaps at some point, or maybe it's earlier than, than I've previously supposed, there's ways to like promote or invite your child to use their own intention. And I don't know where that balance is necessarily. Right. I'm not saying my, my six-year-old that just like puts his foot down says, I don't want to go to church today. Yeah. I don't think that it's like leading him to live this intentional life to say like, Hey man, if you feel like you want to be intentional about staying home and playing Legos by yourself while we all go to church, I don't want to give him that choice. I'll say get in the car today. Right. Um, but as they grow and as the opportunities present themselves, I don't know. I'm just thinking about this idea of, of fasting being an example of like, Hey, we're fasting. Here's why. Mm -hmm. And that choice is yours. And if you choose to, you know, here are some of the benefits and the, and the blessings that I can promise you. Um, I I just think it's just, it's just wise to remember, you know, for them to have an experience with that, not just to have an experience with holding to the Orthodox, you know, uh, principles, which there is value in that. I would argue, um, depends on what the, what the principles are, I guess, but, um, (laughs) But yeah, just to kind of like initiate some of that is sounds super healthy. I mean, you're, you're talking, you're inspiring me to, to ask myself, Hey, am I fasting on autopilot or am I actually accessing, you know, the power of intentional fasting? Well, you, you so said something scattered thoughts. important. Like, I don't want to overlook, you said something I think that all the listeners should understand is let's say you are telling, you know, your six-year-old, Hey, we're fasting. There is a step that comes after the instruction. The step that comes after the instruction is the reason why, right? And that step after the instruction, why, why that is so important 
is because if people don't understand the reasoning behind something, then they can't choose to be intentional. All they can choose is to be obligatory, right? And, and follow what's going on, right? And there's a huge, you know, I, I grew up and, and, and still, you know, I, probably a, a bad word in most situations, but I, 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 I am in the Pentecostal <laughs> version of Christianity, right? Evangelical, right? But there's a huge, huge drop-off from kids that grew up in that and adults that are still involved in that because there is such a rigor around we have to go to church on Sunday at nine and then we've got a six o'clock p.m. service and then we've got Wednesday service and then we've got Thursday Bible study and then we've got all of these things. And if you don't give the or if you don't take away that rigor and say to some, you know, your kid or whoever you're bringing into that circle of decision-making and you don't say, Hey, the reason that we do this is because, right. And if you do this, these are the things that you are going to be able to see. If you do that, then they can't make that decision. And when people feel like they're backed into a corner and they don't have autonomy in the decision-making, they have fight or flight right? Flight is running away from the faith and then telling people, oh my God, like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Fight is, you know, actually just say, telling people, no, get away from me. I don't want any part of this posting on Facebook, how awful these individuals are, right? If we can give people the autonomy to make decisions after we have provided them the resources and the knowledge and the understanding of why this decision would be beneficial to them, right? That's when people can create intentionality, right? I, mm. I've run sales teams, shoot, since I was 23 years old, right? And every single time I ask someone to make a cold call, every single time I tell someone a metric that is needed to hit, there is a why behind it. And in business, there's math behind it. Hey, we have this $100 million goal. There are 10 of you right? We need you to knock on this many doors, make this many calls, make, have this many meetings a week and make this many sales per week. Because if you do that at the conversion rates that we have right now, we as an organization will hit a, will hit a hundred million dollars. You each will bring home X amount of dollars. And this is going to, and then understanding their why is important too, because each individual is driven by a different thing. Right. So I may be driven by, you know, being able to go on vacation with my family versus someone else may be driven by buying a Maserati versus someone else being driven by just being able to, you know, pay their bills, whatever it is. And when I give them that why of we've got this major goal, here are the micro steps. If we have these conversion rates right here, you're going to then, you know, Alex, be able to buy that home, support your family. Right. And then I can then further those conversations of intentionality because I understand their why they understand my why they understand the benefits of the decisions that they're making every single day. As a leader, I now can say, hey, when they're when they're falling a little short, I now have a lever to pull. And if I'm falling short as a leader as well, they now have a lever to pull. Right. And say, hey, I thought we had this goal. Right. And so when it comes to if, to bring this all back around to fasting, it's, you know, telling someone if, if I were to talk to someone who's listening and going, man, this is really interesting. You know, I would say that the biggest thing is understanding the why behind it. 
so that you have a lever to pull. And then you make that decision on which that, if, if that lever is something you're willing to pull, right? If that's something that's going to get you to the next level, if that's something that's going to get you to the point where you're able to make the decisions that are going to guide you in that next like area of your life, right? So that why behind everything is so important to create intentionality and then allowing people the autonomy to say yes or no. And I don't think that happens at six years old, right? right. I think there is a point, right? You know, my daughter's two. Nap time is nap time. Right. Like you take a nap and, you know, we'll read books. Right. But, and, and at two years old, I can't give her the why, like, Hey, if you don't take a nap today, you're going to be, you know, a monster this evening. Right. Like she yeah. doesn't understand that yet, but still right. creating that structure around, you know, that this is what we do. And then as they get older, being able to teach them and coach them and lead them in the way that you, that you think, and that, you know, is going to be the best path for them. I think that then allows them not to have those, um, those, those painful experiences for lack of a better term of just saying, well, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to, you know, make these calls. I don't want to do these things because there's no why and no intentionality behind that. Yeah. Beautifully said, man. I really, really appreciate those words. And you know, for the record, I, I don't encourage or even like tell my kids to fast until they, uh, we've always thought like when they're eight years old, we'll kind of invite them like, Hey, you know, it's fast Sunday. Um, because we, we baptize, you know, we can be baptized at age eight in our faith. And so, you know, my nine-year-old crew, um, it's been interesting, you know, seeing his reaction to this. I've tried to play as the best I can into the, Hey, this is your choice. Um, this is what we do and this is your choice. And, uh, we've had some very interesting, you know, his like fight or flight brain, like kicks on and he's like starving, you know, like when he wouldn't have even eaten breakfast, but he's just starving, you know, Oh man, how much longer, you know, and he's stressed out. And, um, anyway, we could talk more about that because there's been some funny things, but, um, okay, let, let's, uh, let's pivot to something completely unrelated for a second. I actually want to talk to you about blindness. Yeah. All right. So here's the deal. I was talking to you recently. Um, and I, I made a post on social media about this and I got, I got a bunch of comments. I have been thinking about blindness because I recently, uh, became associated with, um, made friends with, um, a family in my area that they actually go to my church congregation and, um, it's a husband and wife and they are both blind. And, um, the, the wife, the sister, um, we call her sister, sister Hux, you know, brother and sister. Um, she's been blind since basically birth a few months after. Um, and anyway, I, I find myself in their home, helping them with different things. And I've had this opportunity that has actually already very richly blessed me and, um, has been more thought provoking than I would have imagined being in the presence of two completely blind people in their home, seeing the way that they live and helping them with tasks has been extremely thought provoking. And, um, and so one of the things I'll share, and then I want to get, I'll ask you some questions is when I go in there. So, so like last week I went over there in the, in the evening, like eight o'clock. So it was very dark and they were looking to get help with, with changing one of the TV settings so they could watch the Olympics with the audio descriptions turned on. And anyway, I walk in, it's pitch dark. 
right? And they're in the back room. And other times that I had been there, um, the the brother, he, he goes and uh, looks for the light switch, you know, like he's so considerate, you know, he remembers like, hey, you know, Alex needs a light. Well, this particular time I walked in and they, they didn't go for the light switch or whatever. So I have my iPhone light on. I mean, it's dark back there. There's even a window in this room. And then I found the light switch and I turned it on. And there was just something about that moment that was interesting to me. It's like, I felt like the disabled one. Hmm. Like I need the light or I'm useless here. And to them, it made no difference. And uh, another time we were in the kitchen, you know, and there happened to be a lot of natural light in there from the windows. But, uh, you know, Chris goes over and finds the light switch and turns it on, you know, just like consider it for me, even though I didn't need it right then. Um, But it just, I don't know, it just struck me like, we look at certain people in their situation and think, okay, they are, you know, they are less able than I am in so many of these ways. Um, and yet in that scenario, it just seems to kind of challenge that very premise in a way and be like, well, are there things that they can see that I cannot, you know, I can't do anything in this room without this light turned on. Um, yeah. So I'm just, th- I'm just thoughtful about it. And you, enter this conversation because I think you said that you have a relationship or, or a, who was it that you were associated with? It was blind. Yeah. My, my current girlfriend is uh, her father before he passed was blind. Okay. And did you associate much with him? Did you I know did. him? I didn't, but I've heard many a stories and heard just the experiences that she's had because she, he was blind from uh, the time she was born to, you know, time he passed a couple of years back. Mm. So was he sighted? Uh, could he see for some period of his life? Yeah. For 18 years he could see. Mm. And then there was an accident that uh, led to him being blind um, in, in that way. So. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. So with this, with this couple I'm referring to um, she has never seen, has no sighted memories and doesn't dream with, with anything visual. Whereas he, uh, is more like your uh, girlfriend's dad, where he was able to see for a good portion of his life and then completely lost his sight. And it's interesting to consider which one I would prefer if I had to pick, you know, I think it. I think I'd pick the first one. I, 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 yeah, I think so. Like looking at it, I, I think it's one of those, I think everyone's probably played this game of like the, would you rather? And it's like, would you rather be deaf or blind? Right. Mm -hmm. I've heard that one before multiple times. And I think that those are, that's a very, very tough question, especially as like someone who is neither. And I think having been able to see the world, experience the world in color and in light and just the things that you're able to bring in, I think it, it would be a much, much harder experience. Yeah. All right. I'd love to hear, you know, your I, I, I would, I would agree. I, I would agree. I mean, it's, it's, you know, so hard for us to say, but man, if I had to pick, yeah. Um, I think I would go because I've asked her, I've said, you know, what do you think about sight? You know, what are your, what are your thoughts? I'm trying to put myself in the position. If I had never seen, all I know is that I end up, you know, finding it helpful for people to guide me down a aisle or, or help me with a door. But if I had to try to conceptualize, what is it that they have that I don't have and you've never seen. I mean, it's just mind bending. It really is. Yes. Whoa, you know. Yeah. Um, and she just said it's it's just nothing. She said people think I live in the dark, 
And she's like, I've experienced feeling dark. She's like, I was in like a hurricane, um, real bad hurricane storm um, one time. And it's like, it just like, there was just darkness. It just felt dark, um, which was interesting. Um, yeah. She's like, but it's not, it's not even like that. It's just, there's just nothing. Um, I, I just hear really well. And she, you know, it's incredible. The, the, the way that she can handle her cell phone is like very impressive the way that she texts and she's, you know, great with Braille and has a great memory and there's these other things, but I don't know. It's just, it's stirring. It really stirs my heart. And, and there was a time where I went over there um, and I, I happened to be having a particularly difficult day and frankly, a pretty difficult week. I just had some heavy things on my heart and, um, and sitting there with them and just, you know, I helped them complete the task for which I had initially been, you know, asked to come and help with. And then I just said, you know, can we just talk for a while and just being in their presence, man, it's amazing how the things that were heavy on my heart or whatever, just seemed to blur out of focus as I listened to their story and realized the simplicity of their life mm. because of their physical constraints. They don't drive. They don't even walk outside really because they live by a busy street and they don't have sight dogs right now because of that reason. And it was just a testament to me of like, man, that is a natural remedy that anyone, potentially anyone can access is to go and sit with someone who's struggling differently than you are. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, to just kind of bask in that gratitude. I mean, I drove home feeling grateful for my ability to see the road and to drive a car where I previously had maybe never really basked in that particular element of gratitude. Right. And so that was a gift that they gave me not even on purpose. They didn't know they gave that to me, but I'm going home thinking, man, what if I couldn't see my children's faces tonight? What if I couldn't, you know? So it's just like, thank you. You know, thank you for this blessing of being able to see, you know? So I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Like you, if you can put yourself in those scenarios of, and it doesn't have to be major, right? It doesn't have to be seeking out someone who's blind and then like saying, oh, wow, I'm, you know, I take my sight for granted. But like, even being in situations, you know, I, in, in high school, I had a friend who died of brain cancer. Mm. And I remember just being around him, especially towards the end, and just the amount of like joy he still had. And just being, and I remember just being sad because, you know, Taylor broke up with me, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, this is the end of the world. And he's like, he's actually looking at the end of this world and the amount of just happiness and joy and gratitude that he had. Just talk about waking you up as a, you know, 16 year old kid going, shoot, I've, you know, for, for, all intents and purposes, I've got the rest of my life to look forward to. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's got a timeline on this and just the joy. And I, I still think about that to this day when I'm down and when I've had a rough week and things aren't going hundred percent my way, I still think about that experience where we're all literally eating pizza. And, you know, my friend who was a, you know, 220 pound running back that was about to have a division one scholarship and gets brain cancer. And now we're sitting at, we're sitting at a table eating pizza and he's 110 pounds. Right. And on his way, you know, out 
just the amount of just joy and peace that he had. It's just that, that sits with me a lot. And I think you make a really good point about a lot of times we take for granted things. And I know this probably sounds cliche, but like the things that we have, right. Because, you know, I wake up every morning and I have a roof over my head. I have food in my you know kitchen. I have a truck outside that I drive to the gym that I have a membership at that I can, you know, and I come home and I sit at my desk that I have my computer and I'm able to work from home and work from anywhere and do whatever I want. And I'm not stressed about finances. And it's like, I don't think about those kind of things, but there are people in this world that are probably a lot happier than I am on a day-to-day basis that don't have half the stuff that I have. And just to put that into perspective is extremely wild. I think a couple weeks back in one of the lab calls, you were talking about, you know, going into like, into like Latin America where they have like dirt as their floor and they don't apologize for it. They don't apologize for it. And I think that's a fascinating, that's a fascinating aspect of, so I, you know, my family, we lived in Costa Rica for about a year. My family was there for a year. I was there for like maybe three months. Um, and yeah, it, that phenomenon of you go in and by our standards, this home is dilapidated and, you know, extremely basic dirt floors and things, but they are more aware of their happiness that you are there in their home than they are about the nature of their home. Yeah. And we here in our, you know, very developed, very luxurious by comparison um, world, how often do we have people step into our house? And I mean, even the nicest among us, I mean, like, like this isn't like a characterization of like someone that's just like particularly like vain or something. It's like, this is like almost the default. It's like, Oh, forgive the mess. Mm-hmm. Forgive all the boxes. We, Hey, we, we're going to be, we're going to be repainting this. You know, this is our transition home. We're just here. It's a little bit small. We're going to be building something. We tell these stories, you know, and it's totally, um, it's just a manifestation of our ego wanting to be okay and assuming that, hey, there may be something this person observes about the situation that might cause them to think that I'm less than, you know, okay in its fullest sense, that I'm less than just, you know, on top of it in life and worthy of being their friend and loving them. And uh, so it's fun to play with the Costa Rican method. Mm-hmm. And because we, because, you know, probably any two people could sit around and go, man, that is nice. That is beautiful to just, you know, just be more grateful that they're there and thinking about, should you get them a glass of water or a glass of Diet Coke? What do they want? Then thinking about explaining the dust or the mess or the whatever, but then to actually do it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a thing, you know, my wife told me about this. Uh, she heard this concept somewhere in a podcast. I think it was called scruffy hospitality. And it's this idea where you're quick to let people in your home. You're quick to be hospitable even in the scruff of it, meaning like there's still a few dishes in the sink and maybe homework's still everywhere. And like, it's definitely not show, show floor ready, showroom ready, whatever. And embracing that and to not say anything about it. Like that's a, it's an interesting level. And I'll tell you, you know, kind of by, I mean, that, that'd be very useful practice for me because we have five kids under nine and, you know, we clean the house, 90% of the nights are spent tidying up. I mean, it's just like a, you know, because if you miss a night, like you're buried, you know? Yeah. And we starts clean and then ends up messy. And we starts clean and ends up messy. And so 
there have been a lot of times and situations, frankly, where I haven't wanted to be quick to invite someone over because we're not ready. You know, it's like, oh, our neighbor, oh, well, let's set up a time, you know, whatever. Um, but scruffy hospitality would be like, you're just more focused on just bring them in, like, just have them in here. Let's show them that we love them because people don't see what you think they see. And it, so, yeah, love that point. Yeah. I think I, and, and I'll add, I'll add to this around that, you know, just around our egos, right? I think it's very easy for us to get in this state of, am I okay? Am I right? Am I visually where people need like think that I need to be, whether it be my house, whether it be my vehicle, whether it be the clothes that I'm wearing, right? I think it's very easy to get into that. But then when you look at, you know, people that are blind or are sick, that have a terminal illness or have an, you know, what we would consider uh, a disability or some sort of impairment. And a lot of times there's very little ego mm-hmm. in, in their, in, in those situations, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes, you, you know what I'm dealing with, you know, the situation, I, I don't have any, I, I don't need to explain it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a lot that can be said around, like, we talk about this a lot as like ego less, right. We're never, we're not going to be yes. ego limbs, but is there a place that we can have less of our drive, a lot of our driving forces of, letting people know that, Hey, I'm okay. Like just because my house is dirty, like it's because we've got something else going on. And a lot of times it's because we're doing something major, right? Like, Hey, the house doesn't look like, because by the way, this is a rental. We're buying a made like a huge house down the road or, you know, my car's, you know, a mess because I went on this major road trip. Haven't had time to clean it since I was in Nashville and Birmingham and all these cool places, right? Like you tend to explain yourself from a point of I'm doing awesome stuff that you can't see right in front of you because what's in front of you is looks like a failure or looks like a mess. And so we try to clean that mess by putting ourselves in a situation of like, look how extravagant I really am. Yes. I think if you can take yourself out of that and because most people don't care about the extravagance and I've found this. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say one thing, one thing that um, there's the phenomenon of renting, Uh, like uh, there's something about renting that pulls this out very Mm. frequently. Maybe, maybe I'm just a, happened more aware of it for some reason. But um, if someone asks a question, oh, did you guys just buy this house? Or you guys just buy it? Did you guys just move here and buy this? Is this your house? Something that kind of suggests homeownership? Well, we're just renting, but, you know, we're, you know, hopefully, you know, soon or, or already. Yeah. I don't know. Just something. It's like, you know, who says that there's any need for any story there? Yeah. You know, it's like, I have a shelter, man. It's amazing. You know, whether, you know, the, 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 did anyone ask about the details of the, is there a rental contract here or a deed (laughs) or a mortgage? Do you have a lien on this property? Like we don't do that with other things, you know? Yeah. There's Um, not, doesn't need to be a story around much. Right. If you really think about it, like most of the time when people are asking you certain questions, they're just asking you questions, right? And I think a lot of the times we think that we need to put a story around everything, right? We need to put a caveat, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Around like, you know, hey, how, like even just as simple as like, how are you, 
right? Like we've talked about this. It's like, yeah, I typically answer with, man, I'm doing phenomenal. Why? Because I really am. Right. And there doesn't need to be, man, I'm doing phenomenal because, or man, I'm doing less than stellar because it's just, this is how I'm doing. Yeah. This is where I'm at. And, you know, sometimes people are going to get offended (laughs) by you being happy. And, you know, I think that a lot of times if we can take ourselves out of the answer completely, like, and what I mean by that is like, take that story out of the answer. I think we're going to be a lot better off. And I mean that in like business. I mean that in relationships. I mean that you don't need an explanation for everything. Sometimes I'm just happy. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You can just love, you can love what is, whether that's, yeah, you're temporarily renting a place and you, you owned a really beautiful big home before with a big yard and now you're renting this apartment and you know the only reason you would really bring that up is because upon being asked about you moving here there was insecurity that flashed in front of your ego you wanted to make some reference to the fact yeah you know we sold our big house did you catch that i had a big house Mm -hmm. um to do this there's just a now what gets interesting is let's say i'm just on this house thing let's just say you're building a five million dollar like the legit mansion and you're currently renting this apartment. What would really be a fun exercise is to, unless it was really relevant to the conversation, have no like need to bring that up. Not that you're hiding it, not that you're trying to do the mock humility thing, but just like, yeah, like, like they're just, you're so pumped to have them in your apartment, you know? Oh yeah. Come on in here, man. Can we fit everybody? Yeah. Cool. You know? Yeah. It's, it's like you, Ned, it's like you where we're talking about fasting. You don't say anything. We, we, say, Hey, has anyone fasted for longer than 24 hours? And a couple people comment, you're like, yeah, I have. I'm like, well, how much longer? Well, 21 days. It's like, that is kind of what we're talking about. You didn't rush. Oh, fasting. Let me raise my hand because you would be justified. I mean, by all accounts of like being the guy with the greatest punch. I mean, that's incredible, right? It's unusual. It's extreme. And you didn't because there wasn't like this, you know, knee jerk reaction to put yourself out there. But then when it was relevant, you offered it up without hesitation either, without like the kind of the mock humility thing, which I have an example of that on the other flip side too, where, you know, I talked about the Costa Rican, you know, this, this kind of like uh, figurative Costa Rican family. I mean, I, I knew some literal ones, but you know, that way of being, but then I'm also aware of this family um, that I've become close with. They live in Florida, but they're from Brazil and they are very affluent. He's sold a software company and, uh, made a lot of money and they have that South American Latin, like amazing warm hospitality thing. It's like a lot of hugs and long hugs and kisses on the cheek and food in your face. Just a very, very rich hospitality that is so, so sweet and unique Um, combined with apparent wealth, Hmm. like big home gated community. So it's really cool blend. And I love the manifestation of the balance that they show me. It's like, welcome into our beautiful home. And we're not even shy about the big, beautiful home. Like, oh, you know, if you said, if you said this house is gorgeous, I don't think they would be like, oh, I know it's a little much, you know, thank you. We feel so lucky. I mean, I know it's this, they wouldn't be uncomfortable in their own skin about it. You know, they'd just be like the same kind of gratitude as like the, 
you know, figurative Costa Rican family with a dirt floor, just like, a, oh, thank you. You know, just kind of this like shared awe, like, oh, thank you. We're so, yeah, so grateful and so grateful to have you here. And yeah. so it's on both sides. It's what I'm trying to say is that it's not, we don't want to just correlate it to being like on, you know, the low end of a economic spectrum or quality of life. It's also equally, it's difficult on both ends, potentially at the extremes to just yeah. have this just being really present and just real, you know, there's no apologies. I, I, there's just, I think it's hard. I think it's, it's sometimes harder when you're on the higher end. Right. And, and I, and, and I'll put this into perspective here. You know, I, I grew up very, you know, without very much money. Right. And where I'm from, you know, is, is a very small town in Maryland, not a very affluent area. Right. And, you know, I've got friends who, do okay. Right. You know, they've, they've gotten out of the trailer park, but they're still on the, the lower middle-class side of things. Right. And it took me and, and on, on my end, I, I got out and had seen some pretty decent success in my career early on. And I remember just like falling back into the, Oh, woe is me trap when I went and visited them because I felt like if I came with the things that I had earned that I would actually be like dissing them. Causing right? them like, pain. Yeah. Insulting them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it is, it sometimes can be harder at like an, at a, a higher end too, to like have people coming and, you know, we're always told as kids to be humble and not to brag and the things like that. But what's interesting, I think I've told this story before uh, in the lab is what's really interesting is this last time I went home, I, I actually got an upgrade in the rental <laughs> in my rent. I'm part of national. I get like all the like cool stuff, but they gave me an Audi a seven, which I didn't know national even had. Right. And I drove that thing down there, you know, could afford it very easily. Could, you know, I, they know where I live. They've seen my house, but I drove that thing down, parked it right in front of their house. And what happened was I wasn't humble at all. They were like, dude, that's an awesome car. And I was like, yeah, man, it's baller. Huh? And, you know, they were asking me about what I'm doing and, and who, how, you know, a lot of the, you know, the nitty gritty around, like, what are you doing? Like, how's this working? All these things. They up leveled because I wasn't humble. And of course I wasn't bragging, but because I didn't hide the things that have made me successful. And I didn't hide the nice car out in front. I didn't hide the success that I'd had. I had friends asking me how, and they were able to then level themselves up, at least in that moment, you know, were, have, you know, a couple of them done anything with their lives since then? No, probably not. But a couple of them continue to reach out. And, you know, I have a buddy of mine who's going back to trade school and, you know, he's trying to get his degree. And, you know, am I saying that's only because I drove down in an upgraded rental car? No, but it's because I didn't take this like mock humility of like, ah, you know, things, things are good, but they could always be better. Right. No, I walked in there. And I said, man, things are phenomenal. Life is great. Look at like, look at this. This is what you like, for lack of a better term, like this is what you could have. Like I, I come from the same streets you come from. I went to the same school you went to, right? I came from the same struggle you came from and look at where I am. And because I showed them that there is this sense of like, oh crap, I can do this. And so I think that a lot of people on that other end of the spectrum, instead of being mock 
humble. Yeah. They should be a little bit more out there. And I'm not saying be Ty Lopez, right? But I am saying, you know, to the people that are around you, show them that this success is real. Show them that this success is not only acceptable, but it's, you can have this as well. Yeah. I didn't do anything special. And so I think it's extremely important. I think you're, I think you're right on with it. And you said that you weren't being humble. I I think it really comes down to, we could have a conversation about the definition, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) maybe, maybe we choose to, to uh, center ourselves on a concept of humble confidence, you know, being like maybe, maybe the greatest manifestation of what it is we're trying to uh, exemplify here is, is something that sounds like humble confidence. It's, um, it's, Hey, come sit at my kitchen table. That's tiny in this apartment. And I'm equally present and happy and with you yeah. as come sit at my, you know, massive marble countertop that I think where it it's exposed, whether or not it's this, uh, humble confidence, maybe a Christ-like type confidence, if we could say that, uh, versus something that aligns more with uh, the term mock humility, like you said. Um, I think what exposes it is when it comes time to give. Hmm. Also, when the thing that we have uh, is threatened or just removed, taken away. Yeah. Our reaction. That's probably where it's exposed to ourselves and to others. Yeah. Right. Like I might be a chill, really welcoming cool guy with my current status, status of, of living, my living standards, whatever. And if some, you know, black swan event comes into my life and, um, I find myself unable to pay my own bills and, you know, living with my parents, you know, my reaction probably says a lot about what type of mock humility or confidence, confident humility or humble confidence, you know, was I living before the, the crazy event? Yeah, I don't know. There's a spectrum, but, but very fascinated by it. Yeah. Being, being comfortable with abundance and being comfortable with the lack of abundance equally. Um, you know, the injunction to let your light shine is actually very interesting because the Bible seems to have some of a paradox there where it's like, you know, don't let anyone see your alms that you give to the poor. Don't even let your right hand know what your left hand doeth. Right. If, if, if you do it to be seen of men, you have your reward. Mm -hmm. And it says, let your light so shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. And so that's kind of the same spectrum I think we're talking about here is it's like, hmm, you know, there, there is a version where you are abundant and prosperous and in a gracious way and even in a way that lets the light shine because it may inspire someone. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's, there's so many nuances to that. And a lot of it just comes down to personal, personal choice and personality, sure. right? I know sure. some that are, you know, they, they live so far below their means because they're comfortable not having, they don't want a house that gets so many gawking responses. And so they just choose where they want. They're just great. You know, um, yeah. there's no right or wrong there, but um, cool, man. I love that. Um, well, Ned, I, I appreciate talking to you and, you know, maybe we'll do this again. I, uh, I know how, how, uh, full your schedule is today of, of good things. Um, anything else that you want to say or ask, um, to kind of round out, you know, the conversation that we've had, we've gone in multiple directions and hopefully there's been some value embedded in there for people that that hear this. I know there has been for me. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think probably the, the biggest thing that I would say is to kind of round this, this out is when it comes to life, it is extremely important to be intentional. It is extremely important to be intentional with your time, intentional with your finances, right? Intentional with your ego, understanding how that drives your life, intentional with your relationships, intentional with your spirituality. And I've learned that over the years, being unintentional with a lot of things in my life. And I think that the earlier that you can figure out what that looks like in your walk, I think the better you're going to be. And I don't think there's ever too late either, by the way. I think that's super important to put here is like, if you're listening to this and you're 50 and you're saying like, oh, well, it's too late. I've already you know done this. I've had these struggles, whatever. Um, I don't think there is a too late to figure out what intentional looks like in your life across, you know, your physical being, your spiritual being, your business, right? Your relationships, the balance that you have there is, you know, one thing that I, I do every single, every single day is I have across my body, my being, my balance and my business, things that need to get done. And typically it's one or two things. And if I get those one or two things done, I'm done, right? Like 99.9% .9 of the time though, I do push forward, but I know that that day has been a success. And so if you can do that, anyone listening and just understand the intentionality around, Hey, today I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work out for 60 minutes, right? I'm going to, you know, be in the word for, you know, 30 minutes, pray for another 10, whatever it may be. Right. In my you know, business, I'm going to uh, read 10 pages right, of a book and then post on social media something that I gathered from that. In my relationships, I'm going to write a note to my wife before she gets up and let her know that I love her, write a note to my kids and let them know that they're cared for. Right. Those certain things and those small steps are going to align with a much greater purpose. And, and I think that if you take anything out of this today, um, you know, we talked a lot, we, we talked about a lot of different things, but I think it all comes back to being intentional around where you want to go and what it is that's going to take to get there. So beautifully said, man, Ned, you are, uh, you're an example to me and I, uh, appreciate our friendship and our association and look forward to, you know, learning many, many exciting things together, uh, you know, move, moving forward. Yeah, man. So, no, I appreciate you having me on brother. Okay. Keep tearing it up and uh, talk to you soon, man.